A woman's husband had heart surgery, and his wife got a letter in the mail saying that he had just inherited a million dollars. She was concerned about his health and didn't want to give him the news, was afraid it might shock him. And so she asked her pastor if he would share, and he agreed. So he went to the man and he said, Joe, what would you do if you had a million bucks? Joe responded, why, pastor, I'd give it to you. Pastor died of a heart attack. (laughs) Well, friends, God has committed himself to us. And we are blessed. And I think about it today. I've been blessed. I hope you have. This morning, I counted at least six different blessings, getting to reconnect with old friends and begin to reconnect with or connect with new friends. Things like that. I think about this beautiful building that literally is a gift from God. Many of you know the story. Some of you may be relatively new and uh, may not be aware. We were meeting several years ago in another building just down the road. And uh, the building was adequate, but it was 35 years old. And um, the developer came to us and he was a Christian. His president of the company was a Christian. And they said, we'd like to buy your property to build homes. And we uh, said, well, we're open to the idea. And they made us an offer, and it was too low for us to be able to do anything with. We went back to them and said, you know, we're very open, but you have to understand we're not a rich congregation, and we are debt-free, and we intend to remain that way. Okay. And so they gave us a slightly larger piece of property, this property, and enough money to build this entire building debt-free. Great blessing from God. There are so many ways that he blesses us. And frankly, the greatest blessings are found between the covers of the Bible. The great gift of God Jesus Christ, the great riches that Christians have, so many blessings. We're going to cover some of those today. God loves to bless his people, including the one we are studying about. We're going through a series on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. I invite you to turn with us. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today. We're going to begin in 2 Samuel, chapter 3. 2 Samuel, chapter 3. If you'll turn to your Bibles or on your phones and read along with me, I invite you to do that. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, I like to uh, learn about archaeology, and I just love it that there is so much archaeological evidence to support the Bible. It's grounded in history, and this is one of those examples I thought I'd share with you. Avram Baran 
and his team of Israeli excavators were um, wrapping up a day's work when they noticed a faint outline of characters etched in stone in a wall. And research told them that this was an Aramaic text. It was from roughly 830 BC, not that long after David lived. And it was about an Aramean king and his military operations against the house of David. I find that fascinating. Characters of ancient history aren't myth. They are supported and grounded in history. This proves beyond a doubt that David was a real historical person. He did live and that he became such a power that his country was known as the house of David. Well, during the seven and a half years that David ruled Judah, remember there's 12 tribes, and Judah is the southern tribe, a powerful tribe, a prominent tribe. But David was ruling at this time only in Judah, the house of Saul, and after his death, his son Ishbosheth was ruling the other tribes. But David ruled Judah, and he grew stronger. Why? Because God blessed him. He had the blessing of God. Verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, you'll remember we've looked at him, General Abner, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. And King Ishbosheth said to Abner, his general, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing you my steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends and have not given you into the hand of David. So, who has the power between these two? The king, Ishbosheth, the son of the former king, or General Abner? The general does. In fact, he, following tradition and not the will of God, crowned Ishbosheth as king, and he's propping him up. And it goes on to say, and yet, you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? He's angry, but he doesn't deny it. Verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan, the far north, to Beersheba in the south. And Ishbosheth could not answer another word because he feared Abner. It's clear that Abner knew the will of God. 
He's supporting the wrong guy. He picked the wrong horse. And at least by now, he knows what God's will is. It's one of those cases of God's will versus your will, or God's will versus our will. Ever been in that struggle? I think most of us have. Think of, for example, a, um, a man falls in love with a woman, and she's everything that he'd always dreamed of, except she's not a Christian. And he thinks, I'm going to marry her. What's God's will in that situation? Christians should marry Christians. That's right. Otherwise, you have father-in-law problems. Satan is your father-in-law. God wants us to marry Christians to protect us and to help us in life. And so we, we find ourselves in all kinds of ways opposing God, not going with his will for our lives. And when we do, what happens? It's kind of like a tug of war with God. Who's going to win? Ultimately, you never want to fight against God. He's stronger than we are. One writer said this, no man can hope successfully to bring any purpose to a good end when his own power, own willpower, is weakened by an inward conviction that he is fighting against God. If you find yourself in that position Go with God's will. He loves you. He wants to bless you. Do what God says, and then just watch and see how he may choose to bless you. So, Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you, to bring over all Israel to you. Now, David has led a long life as a fugitive. I'm guessing about 10 years so far. He has been on the run. He has been pursued by Saul. Can you imagine, you know, the king chasing you and you, you go to the west and he chases after you and you get out of his reach. And then you come back into the country. And then he chases you to the east and you go over into Moab. And then you try to come back to your own country because God says come back. And then he chases you out into the west. He has been pursued for years. He's been trying to protect his family, provide for people that depend on him. But it's been difficult. It's been hard. Now, things are going in a better direction. He's been chosen, as we saw last week, to lead the tribe of Judah, his own tribe. Now, seven years into that rule, it looks like Abner, the real power behind the northern kingdom, those 11 tribes, he's going to throw his weight behind David. He's going to support him. It's looking good. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time, you have been seeking David as your king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David will I save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. 
Abner also spoke to Benjamin. There is a separate tribe, and because they are the tribe of Saul, David's enemy, really, they take some special coaxing, but he even reaches out to them. And Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So after being chased down by 3,000 soldiers, it now becomes clear that David, not Saul, not the son of Saul, David has the heart of all the people. They really want to get behind him. What an amazing turnaround. Abner visits David next, verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he is gone in peace. So you've got David, the king of the southern tribe, Abner, the real power in all the northern tribes, and they've been at war for years. Well, David is pleased with Abner, and the author of this text is careful to note three times that David sent Abner on his mission in peace. Now that's important to, to hear that because that will mean a lot in the coming verses. But not everyone is happy. Verse 24. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to deceive you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to, to know you're going out and you're coming in to know all that you are doing. In other words, he's pretending to make a covenant with you. He's contending, pretending to be your friend. He really came here deceptively to spy out what you're doing. He's going to come back with the army and he's going to attack you. Maybe not surprising, the next thing that happens, Joab murders Abner. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent the messengers after Abner, and they brought him back. But David did not know about it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. 
for the, the blood of Asael, his brother. There are many reasons why Joab doesn't like Abner. One is Abner is a man of character and Joab is not. Doesn't have as good a reputation. Another reason is that Abner is a competing commander-in-chief. He's in charge of all the armies of the 11 tribes, where Joab is only in charge of one army, one tribe. And Abner is a threat to Joab's ascension and his continuing advancement in his career, because David is about ready to hand up being in charge of the armies over to General Abner. But the key reason that Joab hates Abner is because there was a battle and Joab's brother, Fleet of Foot, was chasing after Abner and Abner tried to dissuade him, tried to tell him, turn aside to the right or the left. He wouldn't, even though Abner was a better fighter. And so finally, Abner had had to thrust the butt of his spear into his stomach so that he died. So Joab is getting revenge Verse 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon his father's house. Rarely in the Old Testament has the writer gone to such lengths to clear the name of the person he's writing about. Usually the text just tells it all and all the warts and everything else. It, the text is always honest about people. Scripture is truthful, and it's truthful here. But he's painting a picture in support of David. David had nothing to do with this, and that's the point he's trying to make. When he says, David sent him away in peace, and it says it three times, that's the point he's trying to make. David had nothing to do with this. Many people would suspect that David might have planned it or orchestrated it, and so he wants it to be very clear he did not. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard of it, well, we, we talked about that one. Okay, verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asael to death at the battle of Gibeon. Now one note about the location of this murder. It talks about it being at Hebron, and that's significant. God had set aside in the Old Testament cities of refuge. Now what do you do if somebody kills somebody else? They don't have police officers. They don't have sheriffs or deputy sheriffs. What do they do? Well, typically what would happen was somebody who had their brother murdered, they'd get all the family members, you know, father, brothers, uncles, whoever they could get, and they'd go put the guy to death. You killed our brother, this is just. But what if he wasn't guilty of malice? What if, say, he's slinging an axe, chopping wood, and the axe head flies off and hits the guy in the head and it kills him? He didn't intend to murder. But now what do you do? Well, that's where God set up the cities of refuge. They were able to flee to a city of refuge and be safe there. 
Hebron is one of those cities. And if the relatives came and said he's guilty of murder, then they would hold a trial there and the elders of the city would pronounce him innocent or guilty. And if he's innocent, he would be spared. Well, Abner did not murder anybody in peacetime. So this is technically murder in a city designed to prevent murder. The result, David mourns deeply for Abner. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the beer, B-I-E-R. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. It's kind of like um, when a president hears that a major figure in his army has been killed. Maybe in an un unsanctioned war, perhaps. And so they ship the casket back to the United States. And the president must make an appearance. He may be genuinely grieved, as David was genuinely grieved over the death of Abner. But it is also a media event. And the president has to lead the country in mourning. This is appropriate. And it paints the picture in the right frame. And it charts the way forward. And so David genuinely cares for Abner and grieves for it, this good man being murdered. But he's also doing this to lead his nation in grieving as well. And all the people wept again over him, over Abner. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread. They're saying, David, eat bread. And he's, he's so grieved at this, he says, I won't do it. I swear I won't eat bread or anything else until the sun goes down. May God do more to me if I don't follow that. And the end result was the people saw this. And they recognized his heart. They saw he wasn't plotting to kill Abner, even though he was the general of the opposing army. He wasn't trying to kill a competing person. He was deeply grieved that this had happened. He had no part in it. What amazes me, as I look at the whole of the story, the whole of the text of what's been going on up until now, that David has been so despised by men, particularly Saul. Now you think about it, David was a teenager and the Philistines come and attack the Israeli army, and uh, they send out their hulk, Goliath, and he is threatening the armies. Now, who's the logical person to go fight him? Well, King Saul, you know, the leader of the army, head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite soldier. But he's not having it. He doesn't want anything to do with that giant. That guy is a tank. 
He has no chance and he knows it. And David, the teenager, steps forward and says, I'll take him on. You? The Lord will help me. And besides, when I've been guarding sheep, when a lion or a bear came and attacked the sheep, I killed the lion and the bear. And so they say, okay, you know the story. He gets his sling and he slings and he sends that rock off and smacks him right in the forehead. This was a major turn of events. But you think about it, before he could become king, God had chosen him as king. Before he could become king, even though he was God's choice, he suffered years of mistreatment, of people trying to kill him, people killing anybody associated with him, like the priests at Nob. And I want to say this to you. Sometimes we look at circumstances and we think, boy, circumstances, they're rotten. That must mean God doesn't like me. And what I want to say to you is don't look at circumstances. God loved David. But God was using circumstances and David couldn't understand, just like oftentimes when we're in deep difficulty, we don't understand why. But can we trust God who's at work in our lives? Can we depend that he is developing us for something up ahead? We don't know what. But circumstances are a bad barometer of God's love. What's a good barometer? The scriptures, they tell us, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, our Savior. God loves us. He gave his son for us. He won't withhold anything that's good for us. We have to trust him because we don't understand. We've all experienced difficulty. But God is using that somehow. So that when we get to heaven, maybe we'll understand fully how God was using that. How was God using the circumstances in David's life? To develop him. He was using the trials as if they were sharpening a spear. David's that spear. God is developing him. And now God blesses him with being chosen a leader first over his own tribe, and then with the approval of the people, they know him to be a good man, a good leader. David has wide approval and is not blamed for Abner's murder. And as David often does, he doesn't pat himself on the back, but rather he lifts other people up. Look at this, verse 38. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And he adds, I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, Joab and his brother, 
They're more severe than I. They're rougher than I am. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, this is a good time to stop and ask, are we more like Joab or more like David? You think about it, what was Joab like? He was, he was rough, he was quick to act, he was vengeful. He took revenge. And I hate to say it, but over the last number of decades, I have known Christians with hate in their hearts. Couldn't wait to launch into an attack to somebody. Are we more like Joab, seeking revenge, or are we more like David, quick to forgive? How did David treat his enemy, King Joab? He welcomed him. He put on a feast for him. They began to put the past in the past. He forgave him for the conflicts that they had had, probably resulting in death, maybe even of people that David knew. But he knew it was the right thing to do, that God wanted unity in the tribes. And David forgave, and David restored the relationship. Are there conflicts that you have had? Are there areas you still need to forgive? I encourage you to do that. Don't let any time pass. Do it quickly. Don't let bitterness hurt your relationships with people and even put distance between you and God. Now, Ishbosheth is murdered. There's a lot of murder in these chapters. Chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baanah, and the name of the other, Rechab. Now Rechab and Baanah set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death, and then it adds, and beheaded him. So Rechab and Baanah cold-heartedly attack a man who's defenseless. And then they take his head. What do you think they're going to do with the head? Well, they're going to take it to David. Why do you think they're going to do that? Think they expect to get something out of the deal? Hey, David, this guy that you were at war with, this guy who's the son of the man who hated you and tried to kill you, here's his head. I think they're expecting something. But they don't get what they expect. David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother. As the Lord lives, who redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, 
Behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. If you remember, the man claimed to have killed Saul. Verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So, David's treatment of the two murderers shows he's not part of that plot. And his treatment of the head of Ishbosheth, this man that's been murdered, his chief competitor, if you want to call him that, David demonstrates he's not plotting against this guy. He's loving this guy. He's respecting this man after his death. Well, finally, David is anointed king of all Israel. Everything in the story has been leading up to this point. Let's look at it. Chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So the elders came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. The next two verses sum up his life. David was 30 years old, when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, we don't know the exact age when David got the nod from God that he was going to be king. But it was something like 16 Somewhere in his teenage years, 16, 17. Can you imagine if he had been made king right then? How would that have worked out? Disaster, maybe? I mean, you think about a 16-year-old leading a whole country at war with another country, which is militarily superior? How would that have worked out? 16? No. Sometimes we want God to do something and we want him to do it when? Yeah, now. <laughs> Sometimes God has a better plan. It's hard to wait. But should we wait on God? Yeah. A couple more things. David selects his capital city, verse 6. And the king... And his men went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, 
but the blind and the lame, they'll ward you off. We don't believe David can come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built the city all around. And here's the key, verse 10. And David became greater and greater. Why? The Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The writer identifies the key to David's success. It wasn't because David was brilliant. It wasn't because he was a great fighter. It wasn't because he was a great general. It was because the Lord God was with him. Now, David didn't have any choice in being chosen king. That was all God. But once he trusted God in this and walked with God, God continued to bless him because now, Generally speaking, David, unlike most everybody else, David walked with God, and God blessed him. One more thing. Verse 11, Hiram, the king of Tyre. Tyre is a Phoenician city on the coast there, right beside Israel, but it's a separate city-state, and this king sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew, don't miss this, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. Saul thought he was in charge. He's large and in charge. It's all up to him. He can say anything. If somebody's to die, Saul says he can die. He thought he was the ultimate. Nobody higher than him. David recognizes something different. He sees that he is under the true sovereign of the nation, the Lord God. Yahweh has chosen David Yahweh has chosen him and put him not to glorify himself, but for the benefit of his people. Like David, we are blessed. We are blessed. As I said, this morning I started counting the blessings and I got six and I stopped. I think I've seen more blessings than that, primarily through people. But the greatest things are found in the Word of God where God tells us how much He loves us and how much He has done for us. You want the cure for the doldrums? Dig into Scripture. Find these things. Meditate on them. Let them change your life as they've changed mine. Various people have compiled lists of verses from the New Testament. I like the one that Duke Clark put together. He compiled 40 things using various verses to support that and to demonstrate these things. And I have chosen just six of those things. I hope that this will warm your heart as it does mine. But here are the six things that we've been blessed with. Number one, justification. 
Galatians 2.16 talks about this. Being justified is a legal or judicial term where God does amazing things for the sinner. Justification has two parts. Being declared free of blame. Being forgiven. Having our sin placed on another. As you see on this, this chart, the red line below going from the believer to Christ. Our guilt was attributed to Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty. He died. But justification is more. It doesn't just take away the negative stuff in our lives and bring us up to zero. It adds our being declared righteous. We are declared righteous. Wrap your mind around that, that a holy and just God takes sinners like myself and all of us and declares us righteous. I mean, that'll, that'll take some time to meditate on. But how about this? Deliverance from the great white throne judgment. And try as I could, I couldn't find better words than straight out of Scripture. And so, this is from Revelation 20. The Apostle John writing, closing the last letter written in the New Testament. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them, for the unbelievers. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. God's just. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But you, who are in Christ, are delivered. You, who have believed in Christ, are free. And there's more. Reconciliation. You know, Scripture tells us before we were God's enemies. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation speaks of a relationship. We have been restored to God in our relationship. And we have access to God. Ephesians 2.18, for through him, Jesus Christ. We both have access to the Father by one spirit. Both Jew and Gentile in Christ have access to the Father. We can come to him. He's never too busy. He always wants to hear from you. He cares about you wants to hear from you, wants you to pray to him. He always makes time. Next, royal ambassadorship. When the president of a country appoints an ambassador to another country, he or she 
has received a great honor, have they not? Do you realize God has appointed each of us to be his ambassador? 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are, what? Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors of Christ. And the final one I have picked, there's many, many more. Spiritual gifts. Not only do you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe in Christ, but also he has bestowed upon us various abilities, spiritual giftedness, things that we can develop perhaps, but things that he has bestowed. He gives some to be teachers. He gives some to be administrators. He gives some to be givers. And he gives some, for example, with the gift of helps, the gift of ability to serve. I think about this last one. I think about uh, Doc Dingworth. Doc Dingworth was uh, the prominent uh, physician in Arlington. Arlington started out relatively small and it exploded over time. He was a doctor throughout that time. He delivered many, many babies in Arlington. And then came the day for him to retire. But he didn't quit serving God. He told me, Mark... I traded in my scalpel for a Makita drill. And as he said it, he had the drill in hand, and he was getting ready to go put up sheetrock in one of the buildings. I love it that men and women are given this gift. I love to see them serve, as so many of you do. It's a beautiful thing. Well, how many here think it's a really great thing to be chosen to be king? How many of you think it's a better thing to be chosen to be a child of God? Here's the application. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Would you say that with me? We are blessed to be a blessing. First the positive and then the negative. When we're blessed, we can pass it along to others. We help others. We encourage them. Maybe they don't know Christ and they're drawn to him because they see something in us. Maybe they are Christians but not having a deep walk with the Lord and they are motivated to walk. And because perhaps we serve them, they become deeper in their discipleship. And God gets the glory. What a great thing to serve others. But then there's the negative side. What if we don't? God doesn't force us to do that. It's our choice. Do we follow the scriptures? Are we obedient? Do we use our lives to serve others? It's kind of like the Dead Sea. You know, I went to Jerusalem many years ago. And we were going to go to the Dead Sea the next day, but the guys I was with, I was younger back then, we had a pickup game of basketball. and So we're, we're shooting hoops three on three, and a guy throws me a, the basketball to get our under this tall guy, and he throws it wide and low. I made the mistake of diving for it. And when I got up, my knee was really bloodied. 
my hands too, but especially the knee. So I was planning on going swimming in the Dead Sea. We go out there next day, I've got my swimsuit, I just, nah. <laughs> Do you know what the Dead Sea is like? Other than being dead. All right. All the water from the Jordan comes into the Dead Sea, but it can't go anywhere. You know why? The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. There's nowhere else for the water to go. It's at the lowest point. So it just keeps coming in, coming in. That water brings minerals, and they just have a high concentration. It brings in this briny, oily stuff, and it just stays there decade after decade. So nothing can grow in the Dead Sea. That's why they call it dead. And some Christians are like that. They just get blessed, and they get blessed, and they get blessed, and they get blessed, and they never give out. And as a result, they're not growing. Let's not be that kind of Christian. This is the time to give and the time to serve. The Marquis de Lafayette was a French officer who provided invaluable assistance to George Washington during the Revolutionary War. When the war was over, he went back to France and resumed his farming. He had many farming estates, did quite well. In 1783, there was a horrible drought, and many of the crops failed. Many of the farmers were suffering. One of his servants came to him and said to him, gave him what he thought was good advice. This would be a great time to sell because of all the failures of the farms around us, the wheat prices are sky high. We should sell. But then when he thought about it, he thought about all the people, all the peasants, all the people suffering all around him. And he said, no, this is the time to give. May we be that kind of Christian. Father God, I thank you for the love that you have for us, the many blessings that you pour out. Lord, you have blessed us in order that we can be a blessing. Father God, please help us to do that. We ask for your honor and your glory. Amen.